0: This is the World That's Interesting Tech podcast, showcasing technologies, leaders and companies who aspire to make the world a better place for all of us. Coming up in today's show. Uh,
1: everything from skin flush to facial expression to the, our posture, we read these subconsciously and understand the uh, the emotional response of the, of the person we're interacting with. Uh, we're looking at ways that we can objectively measure these and turn these back into medical grade biomarkers of literally how we feel.
0: I am very excited today to be joined by Graham Cox from M Tech Labs. Graham, it's very nice to have you on today. Uh, please do tell me a bit more about yourself. Introduce yourself and what you do at M Tech.
1: Thanks, Scott. It's great to be here. Um, so, uh, as you say, I'm the CEO and co-founder of the company MTech Tech Labs. Uh, personally, I'm. Uh, um, my background is in artificial intelligence. My degrees in AI uh, from. Uh, back in the 1990s and I've been working uh, with uh, big data, machine learning and um, deep tech for my entire career, both um, in large consultancies and um, in several of my own startups along the way. Um, my, the first startup I was involved with was actually uh, whilst I was still in uh, in university and that's been a kind of a, a feature of my uh, my life ever since. Um, I built a cybersecurity startup um, around the turn of the century and ran that through until I sold it to, uh, to Dell, uh, which now forms a core part of Dell's SecureWorks, uh, their global cybersecurity division um, um, provides some of the core monitoring um, expertise and uh, algorithms into their solutions. Uh, And um, yes, the whole area of, uh, of, of, of human performance and behavior and uh, effective computing has been, a, has been a kind of major thread in my life uh, from, from the, the start of my career through to now. Um, I uh, either working as a consultant in understanding how to improve processes, uh, people and technology in, in situ or in uh, trying to build and operate teams of people in the companies that I've created myself and indeed in my uh, in my sports uh, i've been personally doing triathlon for about 20, uh, 20 years now uh, and i've been a triathlon coach uh, for uh, 9 years and uh, in the whole process of improving performance changing be- behaviors for the positive etc has been a it's kind of like that central thread of my um, interest in uh, in both work and personal investigation um, so m comes around really as, I think, the culmination of all of that. Um, uh, a fortuitous meeting with uh, a, a brilliant chap called Charles Viduca, who is a, uh, a facial surgeon um, who I met in the school playground, as you do, about six, seven years ago down in Brighton, where I now live, uh, led me to realize that uh, we were talking about new ways of reading um, expressivity Uh, on the human face and how important that is to the fundamental understanding of human behaviour and therefore how you can modify it. Um, What we like and what we dislike fundamentally drives our behaviour, so that gut reaction we have to whatever it is, the things that we do, the, the, uh, the food that we eat, the things that we experience, this drives how we're going to operate in the future and that's fundamentally important to understanding the human condition and how to um, how to both improve people's uh, lives and welfare but how to actually also get the best out of them as well on a purely health basis 70 percent seven out of 10 of the leading causes of avoidable death are driven fundamentally by our behaviors um, and though by those behaviours, I mean things like what we eat, um, the drugs that we take into our bodies, uh, whether we smoke or not, whether we do exercise or not, uh, the choices that we make, the little ones day to day that lead up to, the, to your to your long term health, and determine whether you are likely to die of stroke or heart attack or uh, emphysema or um, drug abuse or you know whatever it is. It's the vast, overwhelming. Uh, load on the NHS and the burden on human health is fundamentally driven by the choices that we make as individuals and by understanding better how to nudge behaviours in the right direction to help people help themselves to help them be the best version of themselves is the basic mission that we set out with MTech to achieve.
0: Wow okay that's fantastic. Um, You touched on health there and the choices we make and actually there's been a couple of Interviews that I've done recently about metabolic health and um, how we can be better at making decisions um, about how we manage that and the impact of that on our long term health as well. Um, so, maybe we'll come on to that in a minute because I'd love to get your kind of professional and your triathlete opinion on that. Um, one of them, a company called Levels, is very much focused in in your kind of persona, <laughs> the high performing athlete. So we'll talk about that. Um, but tell me more about what is um, what is the technology that you do at MTech and how does that how would people see that?
1: Yes, absolutely. So uh, obviously, I've given you a very high level view, and it's like, well, uh, what what is it what is it we're actually doing? So. Fundamentally, the, the core technology that we have been uh, developing, which, is, which has a lot of novelty around it and has led us to um, creating a lot of new intellectual property along the way, is in, uh, is in uh, improved ways of reading the physical signals of human emotional response. Uh, we like to do that with sensors primarily rather than with cameras, uh, and we are reading things like the electrical muscle activity um, inside the face. To understand the tiny um, uh, reactions that we have, the, the micro-expression reactions that we have that indicate our actual gut response to whatever the stimulus is we're being faced with. Um, features of uh, changes in our heart rate, and the variability of that heart rate and the heart rate itself, and the subtle features within it that indicate um, the level of excitement or arousal that we have when we're faced with whatever a stimulus is, uh, and uh, and and movement, the body movement of our, particularly of our upper body and head, that indicates things like whether we're attracted into something or whether we're repelled from it, uh, and understanding those different features, the th- the kind of things that a uh, somebody with a high emotional iq subconsciously reads and interprets extremely well and at the other end of the scale somebody with a degree of autism reads exceptionally badly this is these cues have been developed uh, so a digital biomarker that indicates emotional response that can be used at a clinical level uh, to uh, to to help drive therapies and behavior change programs
0: that sounds very important uh, very important especially in today's in today's world where I think we're all suffering from conditions and anxieties and issues that we probably didn't even know we we could be succumbed to a year ago but in terms of just trying to frame it there's um there's a little chart that I use um all the time it's the United Nations SDGs and here it is here's one I printed out earlier on um I can imagine you know good health is a, is an obvious um it's an obvious bucket here that, that you would fit into. Are there any others in here that you think, um, you know, MTech could fit into? Maybe quality education or reduced inequalities. How, how do you feel about that?
1: Um, yes, well, certainly um, the ability to uh, take that next level of human communication and quantify it. So to go beyond Um, speech analysis, which is currently state of the art with um, Alexa, Siri, etc., and move that through into an emotional understanding of the of that next layer of communication, the body language and um, subtle uh, vocal and physical cues that we give out that indicate how we really feel about things. That does that that allows us to better influence behavior at all levels. And I see I see the uh, that is a, as, as a spectrum where at one end at the one end of the spectrum, you are dealing with clinical issues. So the vast quantity of uh, anxiety issues that exist in the world today. Um, in 2018 it was recognized that over 300 million people worldwide had a clinical anxiety problem, uh, aside from just the general day-to-day anxieties and issues we deal with that are at a non-medical level. That's before coronavirus hit us. You know, the level of anxiety, uh, and tension in the population today as we speak, I, you know, we, we can all see it, it's, uh, it's, it's risen massively over the last year. And that is a real uh, problem of how we deal with that. But, but we're on a spectrum, and as you say, in those STGs, the, the spectrum of behaviour change goes from dealing with actual clinical issues at one end to improving performance of otherwise normal people at the other end. So, And those performance improvements include improved educational outcomes by tailoring educational content to understand your audience, to actually play to your audience. Mm. Uh, the ability of content uh, delivered to adapt to whether the specific audience you're playing it to is actually enjoying and engaged with your content or not provides uh, a potential future generation of educational delivery in, in, in immersive technologies, virtual reality, um, augmented reality, etc., or, or 2D content that allows an adaptation and, uh, personalization of delivery that, uh, that we that we don't we're not able to see today
0: so is that where we would find your technology in the immersive world in integrated into virtual and augmented reality so, systems
1: so so our first uh, products to market are in as exactly as you say scott they're integrated into virtual reality and that's for a, a number of reasons so the first is that um a lot of the commercial use of our technology today is in, uh, is in research, whether that is academic research, um, clinical research in uh, drug and therapy trials, or, or, or indeed in commercial research, in you know, market research around uh, content testing, etc. Uh, and immersive environments like virtual reality provide the ultimate experimental environment. So for our clinical work, where we're dealing with things like post-traumatic stress disorder, Um, It's extraordinarily difficult and expensive to put somebody back into a situation that gave them a trauma in the first place. You know, you can't, you know, you wouldn't want to put somebody in a war zone in order to help treat their their, their war zone related trauma. You wouldn't want to put them back in an accident scenario in order to do that. Immersive technologies allow you to provide access to those traumatic experiences in a safe and controlled manner. Similarly, when you're dealing with um, anxieties or phobias, so social anxiety, for example, uh, mixing, mixing with crowds, social interactions, et cetera, you can do that in a safe, controlled, a cheap and effective manner in virtual reality that, um, that, that physically doing that with therapists in, in live scenarios is, is just logistically very hard. Mm. And ultimately we see ways for people to, to start doing self-treatment for anxieties, phobias, Uh, and traumatic um, episodes using home-based systems that allow them to to, to run through protocols at their own pace and their own time, uh, and to to gain the benefits without constant oversight from from a therapist, that that is our end goal. And similarly, again, on that spectrum, at the other end of that, self-paced educational performance improvement uh, tools, like training people for better public speaking, for example, training um, frontline personnel to be able to deal, uh, to be more resilient in dealing with emotionally difficult uh, environments. So how do firefighters cope with a, uh, w- with, a, with a, an accident scene the moment they arrive? Being able to train uh, in simulations gives huge benefits to both the organizations that are paying for that training and indeed to the individual themselves in the, the number of times they can work through that, the flexibility they have to access that content uh, and uh, you know there, there's there's a huge amount of evidence to show that simulations do evoke those same gut emotional responses as the as the real thing. so we're we're a fan,
0: yeah, and I've seen some pretty astonishing figures about the efficacy of virtual reality training compared to even face-to-face classroom training. Um, and the numbers are quite yeah you know, quite amazing. I think it's um. 50% reduction in costs, four times better learning outcome, faster learning, the ability to translate all of these, um, actually to carry over from the virtual world into the real world, these training is quite astonishing. With your technology, does that make it even more um, effective? Because you can tune it to exactly my response, which may not be the same as yours or the person next door.
1: Well, that in, primarily in the work we're doing today, we're, we're adding we're adding a layer to that uh, training or therapy. So rather than providing uh, behavioral training for purely um, physical process-oriented tasks, we're able to provide behavioral training to improve, uh, improve emotional response, to reduce your stress, to reduce your anxiety, to improve your ability to react accurately and appropriately in the moment. Um, bringing in that extra dimension but you're right as well that in the future the ability to understand the level of engagement that an individual has with the subject uh, allows the opportunity for the content to automatically adapt to that person so Mm -hmm. for example if you want to put somebody through a series of, of more complex and demanding tasks being able to estimate the cognitive load of that individual as they go through these tasks allows the Uh, Adaptive content to deliver the right level of complexity, the right level of stress, the right number of distractors uh, to the individual to suit a personalized model for them. And that's absolutely a goal that we have with us with our technology.
0: Hmm. So on the therapy side, um, I'm a mild sufferer of um, uh, fear of heights. I think if you were to ask my family, they may say it's slightly more mild, slightly more than mild. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I know people who are absolutely terrified of going up a ladder. I can do a ladder as long as it's not too high. But when you get me climbing up castle ruins and things like that, then I get a bit edgy. Now, if I was to um, want to overcome those fears, I understand that that kind of exposure—you have to just keep nudging yourself a little bit further my nudge would be completely different to somebody else's nudge who may be better or worse than that. So is that Correct. the kind of benefits that you're, you're seeing, that ability to personalize that treatment for an individual so they can be more effective at overcoming a fear or a phobia?
1: Yes, absolutely. So if you think about it, so, so we'd call this virtual reality exposure therapy. So the principle there is in the same way as um, um, some people with um, milder allergies might train themselves to deal with a, with a mild peanut allergy, for example, that, that slow and gradual exposure to small quantities of the stressor allows your system to build up resistance to that, uh, to that stressor over time. And it's exactly the same. It's a desensitization process, um, whether it's fear of heights, fear of flying, fear of crowds, whatever it might be, that by gradually introducing yourself to the thing that causes the anxiety you can learn to overcome and manage that anxiety particularly if you're given some mental tools um, to 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 keep yourself calm and to handle it when you find yourself in that scenario the trick however to, for success is to be given the right level of stimulus so if you overstimulate somebody you know so i suddenly put you standing one foot on the top of the grand canyon from from scratch you freak out, you your, your your fear of heights is much worse than it's ever been before, and there's no way you're ever coming back to that that therapy again. On the other end of the, the spectrum, if I you know I put you on top of a you know a wooden wooden crate in the simulation, you're you're a half a foot off the ground, you're standing there thinking, Well, now what's the point of this? So under stimulation and overstimulation both lead to people not completing the protocols and not getting the benefits. But today. Um, skilled human interaction is required in order to gauge that level of uh, exposure. So a, so a behavioural therapist, cognitive behavioural therapist, a psychotherapist, et cetera, would lead you through a clinical process in helping you treat that phobia. And, and they would guide saying, right, I can see that you need a bit more stimulation, a bit less, et cetera. Uh, and today and for in the near future, our technologies will support and augment that therapist by providing the therapist with more objective information. Our potential end goal here is that we can take that therapist intelligence into the AI of our system itself and the system can automatically read you and understand the level of stimulus that's appropriate to you so that you can go through self-guided therapy in a safe but effective manner.
0: Ah, I'm glad you came back to AI, that was one of my questions. All of this sounds like sensory fusion and augmentation again something I studied at university around the same time as you um, I was wondering how the AI piece comes into this, and what what benefit that adds to it.
1: Absolutely. So, <clears throat> what we're doing here is developing a a personalised model of, uh, of 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 emotional response, which, to the best of my knowledge, and in the, in the research that that we look at around the world, has not been effectively delivered before. So. Um, in the field of uh, emotion AI, as it might get called generally, um, the world is 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 mostly focused on a single approach, a, a unified approach to classifying everybody's emotional response, regardless of your age, gender, nationality, racial background, etc. And whilst things like um, the major expressions like a smile, for example, uh, they are universal features. A smile is a smile uh, in its basic form, wherever you go in the world. The way that we use our expressivity, the, the quantity we express, and the uh, and the, the the way that that is subtly delivered is, is not only different in Japan as it is from America, but it is also different in men and women. It's different in you know it's different at every level. It's different between you and me, Scott. You know, so you might smile three times more in a day than I do, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a happier person than me. That just might be that your base level of smiliness is is set different to mine and and that and that that personalized approach to understanding um, individual expressivity and emotional state i believe is absolutely key to success so we are building uh, deep learning models that not only provide us with classification across demographics and allow us to understand broad uh, sweeps of, of 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 response to a given stimulus but actually also a calibrated learning model for an individual that, that improves its understanding of you the more that you have exposure to it. Mm. Uh, and that's, a, that's it's, it's, a, it's a machine learning approach uh, where we've mo- we're have moving into the deep learning space now, which is very exciting as, uh, for me as an, um, with my AI background, it's, it's where we've been looking to get to for the last few years. And it's starting to show real uh, benefits in, uh, in delivery. In practical terms, I haven't really described, you know, physically what we're dealing with here. So, so you know, to, to put in, in in the viewer's mind, the technology we're dealing with here, we have VR headsets that have a set of sensors integrated into the facial interface, the bit that actually touches the skin around the face, and that allows us to read the electrical muscle activity of your face, uh, reads heart rate information, reads your uh, body movement, um, skin flush, etc., um, and uses a combination of um, local processing inside the device itself and also cloud deep learning processing to interpret sensor data from the human body through into physiological data and from that physiological data into a personalized model of emotional response. When we add into that the data stream that comes out of the virtual reality environment, which provides us with context, we're able to really understand your response to different scenarios. So, you know, a, an emotional response is only valid if you understand what it is you're responding to. You know, so uh, so if if I just look at you and I don't see what it is that you're mm-hmm. smiling at, frowning at, um, shying away from, whatever it might be, I can't really understand you and your, your 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 range of emotional responses. And the wonder of virtual reality is that you have detailed access to all of the data on what the stimulus was, as well as all of our biometric data and what the response is. That together gives us our machine learning models that drive the company at its heart.
0: Wow. Um, Now, that raises a lot of questions in my mind. One about, um, are the developers ready to, um, to take this kind of information and build these personalized environments, adaptive environments? And then, very much linked to that and everything you just said just then, there's a lot of very personal and intimate data that's coming out of this, right? Um, and we don't live in a world where personal and intimate data is um, very well managed. So, what are your thoughts on on kind of the responsibilities around around managing that data?
1: That's a that's a fantastic question, Scott, and something that's that's very close to my heart. Um, with my combination of my 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 focus and my passion in um, in helping people through helping them understand their own behaviors, with my background in cybersecurity as well, mm-hmm. uh, the whole issue of data privacy and indeed data ownership is uh, is is very close to my heart. So the approach that we uh, that we take with our data is that all the data remains owned by either the individual who is um, self-managing using our, our our clinical end system or belongs to the researcher if it's a research system who and, and they are collecting data from a, a, a number of participants. And although our data flows through our cloud infrastructure, we do not retain any of the um, user recognizable data features that, uh, that that so that none of the raw data from uh, collection ever hits MTech um, accessible property. So it goes through our Uh, through our deep learning engine and provides insights in terms of um, uh, affect emotional response back to the to the to the recipient. But uh, we only retain the higher level insights that are generated from that. So the uh, the ability to improve our personalized models is, of course, fundamental to the success of the company. Uh, But the data itself remains owned by the people who collect it. And that's a that's a that's a key um fundamental requirement for us we're actually um founder members of the um uh the i'm going to get this wrong the x XRSI, which is a um a a group fundamentally built for um maintaining and developing the security and privacy of data collected using immersive environments mm-hmm. because as you say these technologies provide a huge amount of personal information and if, even if, even in or, an ordinary VR headset if you take out the biometrics, so it's just a standard VR headset, the, the quantity of personal information that could be captured by a developer is huge mm-hmm. to the extent of things like um, um you know understanding gender and age so demographic information gleaned from um how people consume vr content and um, sexual preferences um, educational background these things can be inferred from vr scenarios quite effectively and there's been some interesting research done on that so um who gets to own your data is fundamentally important i completely agree that's
0: that's particularly eye-opening I think some of those things um inferring sexual orientation from what you look at I guess within a virtual environment
1: absolutely well I mean this is a very crude example but you go into vr I present you with a woman in a bikini and the the, the way the the way your eyes linger and for how long gives a pretty strong indication of your um of your sexual preferences and uh, and some information about your background instantly and there's been some solid research uh, on exactly that interesting experimental setup, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: and I guess as virtual reality and these immersive technologies becomes more and more available and more and more pervasive in our lives, this is a question that's not going to get any smaller, is it? It's it's going to grow. Uh,
1: totally. I mean, uh, uh, it, it it does amaze me actually how accepting we are of our social media and the c- quantity of data that is being collected there. I mean, my understanding of the um, of the algorithms that go behind TikTok, for example, to determine uh, what the video feed is that you're given. uh, There's some there's some startlingly um, insightful algorithms going into uh, every movement that you make on screen, how long you watch every every video for where your finger hits on the screen to scroll. Um, every part of it is analyzed in order to tailor that stream to you. And, and it's incredibly effective But you know, as if you, uh, uh, if you know, any TikTok users, they get hooked pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. I have heard <laughs> my oldest also keeps telling me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that is the demographic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, I think lastly, to touch on some of the challenges that many of us have faced in the last 12 months, um, and a broader conversation really. Um, <clears throat> as we find ourselves, many of us find ourselves working from home a lot more than we ever thought we would if we ever thought we did. Um, there's a lot of challenges that we have to deal with there. Um, uh, isolation, anxiety, um, separation anxiety from your team, you know, all of these big things that are that are kind of building up in, in us. Um, and then there's the role of the employer so i in some of these conversations i've seen we've had a lot of conversation about how far does that role of responsibility that moral and even legal responsibility of the employer stretch into a working from home environment um so it'd be good to get your idea of what how that landscape lies and then the role of the kind of technologies we're talking about um, today does that fit in in that picture at all
1: OK, uh, really interesting stuff. So my, my firstly, my, my, my personal philosophy on building and managing teams is that um, uh, empowerment and self-determination is the way forwards. Now, I say that um, in the full knowledge that the teams that I work with are um, educated to the highest possible level. They're all career individuals. They're all highly paid. And therefore, you expect them all to be highly motivated and individual uh, very individualistic in their approach anyway but nevertheless for for within that context I'm a very strong believer in uh, personal determination about flexibility in working hours approach etc and as such I'm massively against employee monitoring um, so that to me that is uh, that is anathema as a business owner and, uh, and a manager myself in terms of our technology and how that uh, how it could be applied because clearly anything that can read emotions could be applied to both uh, for both human good and also for nefarious purposes as well. Um, I focus specifically on sensors rather than cameras because they the depth of information that we can find is so much greater, which allows us to build up personalized models at a level that we just couldn't do. I believe using features from um, from from video footage. However, there's a second kind of um, uh, network effect benefit of, of of using sensors, which is that there is a very strong sense of um, personal acceptance in using our technology in the first place. The fact that you physically have to put something on your face, whether that is our virtual reality headset or the, or the glasses that we have in prototype for real world estimation of emotional response means that you are physically accepting a, a level of computer monitoring when you put them on uh, and hopefully doing it because you are you accept the benefit that comes with doing that you that you' you're, you're put you're donning your personal assistant who is working purely for your benefit to understand your responses and to give you cues that will h- help improve you it's very different from an employer deploying software to your work computer with the camera here and using that camera data to understand whether you're Paying attention to your screen, whether you're actually working, whether you're looking grumpy or so, cameras are intrusive fundamentally. That's part of the reason why Google Glass failed uh, when, when it came around. It wasn't that you know the glass hole approach. It wasn't that the glasses looked weird. I believe you know in Silicon Valley that's not such a big deal at all. It's the fact that there was a camera pointing at the person you were talking to, and that's a level of social intrusion that even in in the twenty first century I don't think we're able to uh, to accept. Um, so um, sensor based technology focused on the wearer is actually much less intrusive because there involves a there's a there's a level of personal responsibility and acceptance in donning it and using it in the first place and I believe that's why we're actually really well suited to succeed in this field where a lot of camera technologies may fail because cameras are um, do not come with personal acceptance anyone can point one at you any time uh, and um, and they don't have that, that ability to deliver personalized information, it's much more generic.
0: Um, I've got a list of other things we could talk about, but in the interest of time, um, let's kind of wrap it up. And uh, if uh, any of the uh, viewers are interested in finding out more about what you're doing at MTech or even XRSI, the work that you're contributing to there, where should they go, what, they, what can they find?
1: Um, well, please come and find us on our website, first of all, mtechlabs.com. Um, anybody who is interested in contacting me, uh, please do email me, uh, graham at mtechlabs.com. I'd love to start a conversation anybody anybody's interested in finding out more about our technology or we can, um, uh, we can help in any way. Um the XRSI is indeed XRSI.org, uh and my co-founder Charles sits as sits as the medical representative on that uh on that committee, as I contribute to uh, from my cybersecurity background. Um and um yes, you know, please start the dialogue, it'd be love to, lovely to talk.
0: Brilliant. Well, I'll, uh, you can give me some links and I'll put them down here, like magic and the videos, uh, the video <laughs> they should be down here for you now. Um, and, um, yeah, so it just, it's just, um, thank you so much for coming on and, uh, sharing your thoughts and ideas. Um, I, I found it fascinating. And like I said, I hope we can do another one later on to talk about the rest of these, <laughs> the rest of these
1: things. On <laughs> I'd love to, Scott. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um,
0: for, for the viewers, uh, please do reach out to Graham using the links below. Um, do like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. And there's a lot of other very interesting interviews coming online soon. So Once again, Brent, thank you so much for your time today. It's been wonderful. Thank you very much, Scott. Lovely to
1: meet
0: you. And that's it for today's show. As usual, a big thank you to our guests for joining us on the show. And a big thank you for all of you for listening and tuning in. If you want to find out more about technologies, companies, leaders that are aspiring to make the world a better place and aligning to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, check out our website, worldthatsinteresting.tech. You'll also find information below in the show notes that will help you find us on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn and of course Facebook.